Well, it is a, an absolute joy of mine uh, to bring the word to you th- this morning. Um, if you're new or you're visiting, uh, my name is Clay Mackey, and I lead the college ministry uh, here at Timberlake. And what I want to do this morning is uh, just continue the series that Pastor Farrell has been uh, working through for about a month. The series is called uh, Critical Characteristics of the Christian Life. Um, He's covered some very important topics like faith in the sufficiency of Scripture, servanthood, love, and then most recently his his two-parter on uh, on forgiveness. Uh, It's been super helpful. If you missed any of those, they're all online. You can go back and check those out. And so as you can see on our PowerPoint, uh, this morning I want to keep the series alive uh, and, and add another critical characteristic. And uh, I would just call this characteristic um, discipling relationships. Discipling relationships. Or perhaps we should say that the the characteristic, the critical characteristic is our our need to cultivate uh, these kinds of relationships where we're discipling one another. And so, when I say discipleship, uh, what immediately comes to your mind? Think about that question for a minute. Discipleship. What comes to your mind? What texts? Um, evangelism? A class that you signed up for at, at the church? Maybe meet on, meeting one-on-one with another person uh, for a set period of time? Hopefully coffee is involved. Some of you non-coffee drinkers are rolling your eyes right now. I can see it. It doesn't have to be involved, but... Uh, <clears throat> It might. Uh, in one sense, uh, all of these things except coffee are uh, legitimate. Uh, it can be, can be parts of, of discipling. Um, cultivating a discipleship relationship does, in, in one sense, in a most basic sense, begin with evangelism. And it should involve, uh, and it could involve, I should say, taking a class at church. And it, it likely involves meeting regularly with, with someone. But... There's a core, really, to discipling, and that's what I want to highlight at the outset here. It's very simple, and it has a basic aim, and we could define it like this. Uh, Discipling is helping others trust and become more obedient to Jesus. Not rocket science. I didn't come up with it. Um, Discipling is helping others trust and become more obedient to Jesus. And I'm taking my cues here from, from Matthew 28. You don't have to turn there. It'll be up on the screen. Matthew 28. Whoop. Missed it. There we go. And here the Lord elaborates on, his, or he gives his own sort of definition of discipleship or the way that discipleship should be worked out. And he tells us to make disciples uh, in two primary ways. By baptizing them. So there's the sort of evangelism coming into the faith aspect by baptizing them, and then second, by teaching them to obey everything that the king has commanded. Um, And so, there's our two aspects of of discipleship. It involves baptizing or evangelism, um, initiating those relationships with unbelievers, uh, seeing them come to faith in Christ. There's the one one side, as I said, by teaching them to trust Jesus. And the other side, just full obedience to his commands. 
And so it, it's both discipling is both providing that help and receiving that help. And so one pastor, you can see it up there, if you want a really simple definition, easy to remember, um, one pastor defines it like this, simply helping others follow Jesus. So that's, that's very doable, helping others follow Jesus. And uh, I can't overestimate how critical of a characteristic this actually is in our lives. Uh, we grow and we make headway in the Christian life as we cultivate these kinds of relationships. You and I desperately need encouragement from people who love us. Uh, we need correction from friends who are actually brave enough to warn us. We need an example from those that are out ahead of us so that we can imitate. In other words, the Sunday sermon, as valuable as it is, it isn't, it isn't all we need. We need other believers coming alongside of us to help. We're still so prone at times to believe lies. And, and when we believe a lie, uh, do we typically know it? No. We're typically duped, deceived, and so we need truth coming to us from the outside, from another person that knows us well enough that can, that can sort of call us on the carpet there. And the Lord calls us very clearly in, in texts like Matthew 28 to be about this, to be this kind of friend, to be discipling. And, uh, and personally, just on a, me to you, uh, I've received this kind of, this kind of discipleship here. Some of you, and including our pastors, uh, have been this kind of friend to me in my last eight years here, uh, and continue to be this kind of friend, uh, to me, challenging my thinking, um, holding me accountable, uh, encouraging me. And so I've grown in large part, uh, still have a long way to go, uh, but I've, the, the fruit in my life has been in large part as a result of people's faithful investment in me. But here's the interesting part. As crucial as this is, okay, this kind of discipling culture is very rare in the American evangelical church. From the outside, things might look good. Uh, there might be high attendance, newer buildings, lots of things to do for everybody, and those aren't inherently bad. But they might look good from the outside. But what is body life actually like? Do the people really know each other? Are sin patterns really being exposed? Are people growing in repentance? Are people gaining obedience and victory in the Christian life? Are the more mature actively seeking out the less mature to bring them along in Christ because they're burdened for their, their growth in Christ? Are the members brave enough to lovingly confront one another when it's necessary? Or, do people live more isolated lives, rarely, if ever, confessing personal sin struggles? Uh, are the members afraid of having sin exposed for what people might think of them? Are people too busy to be really involved in each other's lives because they have so many other things going on? Do the, the members think that the pastors are the only ones that are supposed to handle this kind of, of discipleship? And so before we, we say, yeah, you know, go get them, Clay, uh, those modern evangelical churches are off the tracks, um, let's just take a moment and look inside. Let's look at ourselves. 
When's the last time you had a church member gently warn you in love? Could you name the people that you're actively pouring into at Timberlake? Could you name their particular sin struggles that you're helping them work through in an effort to help them grow in Christ? Could you name your own particular sin struggles that people are helping you work through? Who are you burdened for and intentionally seeking to help here at Timberlake? Now, it's really tempting at this point to think, well, uh, I'm not doing a very good job at that. Uh, thanks, Clay. I need to do better. I should try to do more discipling. And that's, that may be true. That's probably true. Uh, I know it's often true in my own life. But before we simply try harder, as important as that is, striving is very important in the Christian life, but before we do that, we need to examine why it is that we struggle like this. We would all acknowledge that we need to be about this, but we all acknowledge that, man, this is a real struggle in my life. So what are some potential uh, roadblocks, uh, we might say, in, in, this discipling, uh, in these discipling relationships? What, what keeps us from that? I've listed a few up on, the, up on the screen for you. This is not exhaustive. It's just things I've seen in my own heart. So um, it's off the front burner. Uh, fear, number one. Fear. We may fear what others think of us if we admit a particular sin pattern. On the other side, we may fear speaking truth uh, because it might mean losing a friendship. You ever felt that way? I have. More often than not, it's the fear of not knowing what to say or being awkward. Man, especially my generation, we hate being awkward. Um, or we fear that we might mess something up or somebody up, Right? Sometimes we're afraid of getting real close to somebody because they might hurt us. We're afraid to evangelize because they might reject us and scorn us and make work difficult or family awkward. That's where we live. Fear is a a really common roadblock here. And so we keep our distance. We give lip service to Matthew 28, but we don't get after it. Another roadblock is, is selfishness. And these interweave as sin often does, but a selfless person is burdened for the growth and the good of others. They are a selfless Christian. But a selfish person is concerned about themselves. Uh, Sometimes in my life, it's hard to even think of others because I'm tempted to be so preoccupied with myself. Can I get an amen? Uh, That's often where we're at. Uh, selfishness is a roadblock. Laziness is number three there. Laziness. Um, oftentimes, taking responsibility for another person is just plain old hard work. Um, we're just lazy at times, and we don't want to expend the energy that it takes to, to walk with somebody through life's trials. And on the flip side, we sometimes neglect the help that is offered to us because we don't want to expend the energy that it's going to take to actually put sin to death in our life by the power of the Spirit and, and transform our thinking. So that's another common roadblock. And last one here we'll talk about is just immaturity, um, just general immaturity. We may feel uh, very acutely aware that we don't know much of the Scriptures. And as a result, we're not going to be much help to anybody. And so I want to kind of acknowledge that in part is true. Um, If you don't know much of the Scriptures, you're not going to be very much help 
to another person. And there's this, the principle in Scripture that says before we try to help somebody get a splinter or a speck out of their eye, uh, we need to make sure there's not a big two-by-four uh, sticking out of our own eye. And so once we get that piece of wood out, then we'll be able to see more clearly to, to help someone else. So totally legitimate, but we don't want to stay there, do we? We don't want to stay in this sort of ignorance uh, stage. And surprisingly, as I talk with people, uh, they've been Christians 5, 10, 15 years, this is often something that's said to me when I ask them why they're not investing like this. Um, they feel that they don't know how to help somebody grow. Or at least that's what they say. So common roadblocks here that we just want to identify. Start identifying, okay, in our hearts. But even though that we know these things, again, speaking from experience, even though we know these things, it's so hard to repent of them and actually get after uh, living our lives full on in Matthew 28 there. So why is it so difficult to turn from fear or the laziness or selfishness to actually spend ourselves in Matthew 28? Well, I want to propose to you, I think Scripture proposes to us, that there, there's something at the motivational level that's missing. We're likely tempted to believe something that's not true. We're tempted to believe that making disciples is not worth the pain, the awkwardness, the time, etc. That's, what we're, that's, a, that's a major lie that we're tempted to believe. We would never say it out loud. But functionally, that's how we live at times. But is that true? Is it really true that making disciples isn't worth it? Well, obviously you know the answer, uh, because Christ has commanded it. It's not worth it, and we're already, but we're already duped. It's so important at the outset to know that, okay, at times we're already duped into believing this lie. So what we need is truth that motivates us. And thankfully, our King Jesus has equipped us with the necessary truth to dispel this, this kind of false thinking. Uh, so in our text today, Jesus is, is going to motivate us to get after his mission of making disciples. And don't miss this. If we believe what Jesus says in this text, if we really believe it, we will overcome those obstacles and make disciples. It'll happen. Uh, it'll be awkward. You'll probably fumble around. You'll certainly uh, not know all the answers. But you will be convinced that you must do it or die trying. You hear that? It's got to seep into the convictional level for, for you and I. And so if you're not already there, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Luke 19. Luke chapter 19. The text we're looking at this morning is typically called the parable of the minas. The parable of the minas. And it's a story, as we, as we read earlier, about a nobleman who goes away to receive a kingdom. And then he entrusts his wealth, the minas, to his servants in the meantime. And they're tasked with increasing his wealth while they wait on him to come back. And then when the king comes back, he does what he says. He evaluates the servants, and then he judges his enemies that tried to oppose his reign. But why does Jesus tell this parable? Luke's pretty explicit in verse 11. He tells us exactly why Jesus told this parable. Look in verse 11. Luke says, as they heard these things, 
he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, and then he tells the parable. So it looks really clear about why Jesus tells this parable, isn't he? Jesus is almost to Jerusalem, and his disciples can barely contain themselves. They think that when Jesus arrives in their capital city, that judgment is coming. The new David will take his throne, cleanse the city, restore the kingdom to Israel, and judge the nations, get this, just like the prophets predicted, because they did. They've been ready to call down fire from heaven since the beginning of this journey back in chapter 9. So from the moment Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem in chapter 9, all the way to this point, at the end of the journey, I mean, they're, they're ready for the, for the judgment to take place. In spite of what we're going to see, Jesus taught them. So for quite some time, Jesus has been teaching them, actually, that those things are going to take place, but not yet. He's been telling them that, 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 that he has come to fulfill everything that the prophets required and predicted, not just that last part. He comes specifically in this portion to fulfill the necessary prerequisite for that kingdom to come, which is his death and resurrection. He's been telling his disciples that the judgment aspect of the kingdom won't come immediately in the way that everybody thinks it's going to come. Instead, the good news of the kingdom will grow slowly like a tree. Uh, it'll grow like leaven in the, in the midst of dough, gaining kingdom citizens all over the earth. And this will happen in the midst of much opposition and suffering, Jesus says. And then the king will return in glory to establish his kingdom on the earth. But the disciples wanted this glory part now. Um, we can identify, right? It's so bad that they've gotten to the point that they are grumbling, okay? Sinful disciples that Jesus forgave at the beginning of the mission are now grumbling like the self-righteous Pharisees. Okay? Jesus, in the story right before this, Jesus goes into the well-known Zacchaeus and dines with him because he repented of his notorious sinful lifestyle. But when he goes in there, notice what they say in verse 7. And when they saw it, who is that? That's everybody. They all grumbled. That's including his disciples. Look what they say. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Uh, Peter, do you remember what Jesus said to you whenever he called you? And what you recognized? You disbelieved the Lord? You, you confessed that you were a sinner in the boat that day? Peter's forgotten. The disciples have forgotten what they've been cleansed from. And so they have sort of imbibed this, what Jesus warned earlier, of the leaven of the Pharisees. So they are criticizing Jesus for this aspect of the mission. They don't get it. But this is precisely the point. The king's mission is not yet judgment. Instead, it's to seek and to save the lost, he says in verse 10. And that's where that story ends. But see, the disciples had traded in this mission of mercy for their own, uh, what we might call a mission of, of judgment. 
And so, Jesus tells this parable to reorient us back to the true mission. That's the purpose of this parable. And and packed in this story are tons of powerful motivations to return to the mission. And that's what we need. We need truth to motivate us. And as I was studying this text, this this kind of funny imagery, but if you think about it like a sponge, if you sort of squeeze this text, uh, the harder you squeeze it, the more motivations keep popping out. Um, and I, I was just kind of kept a list. I was like, man, I can't preach 20 motivations. Uh, that, would, that would take forever. So uh, I've just sort of boiled it down to four powerful motivations uh, to get after the mission of making disciples. Um, four motivations to pursue making disciples is how it's laid out on the screen. And uh, number one, Jesus clearly expects us to invest in his mission. Jesus clearly expects us to invest in his mission. Look in uh, verse 12. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. So there it is. The expectation of the king for his servants to invest in his business. To be profitable. So in this parable, uh, it might seem odd to us, but Jesus is actually drawing on something that happened occasionally in the Roman Empire. Uh, Once Rome conquered an area... One of the natives who, who wanted to rule or govern in that area would travel to Rome to negotiate the right to be what's called like a vassal king or a governor kind of in that region. Then after Rome approved it, the king would come back, get this, with the full authority of the emperor and, and Rome's backing. So that's sort of the imagery that Jesus is, is appealing to here. And as we step back and we look at all of Luke Acts together, you know, Luke is the, the, the one author of both. As we step back and look at this, we can connect the dots from this parable to reality, to, to I think, what Luke intends and Jesus intends us to connect. So the first of these connections is that the nobleman corresponds to Jesus, who Jesus must go away, in this case, to heaven to receive his kingdom. So it's another way of saying that the kingdom won't come immediately, which is, again, the purpose of why Jesus told this parable. So then comes the next characters in this parable. The nobleman has servants, slaves, people who worked for him. And he parcels out one mina to each of them. So each of them get the same amount, ten servants, ten minas, each of them get one. And a mina was anywhere between three and four months, somewhere in that ballpark, of, of a salary for a normal day laborer. And so uh, it's hard to make these sort of transitions into U.S. dollars, uh, but just for the sake of argument, give us a rough comparison. Uh, maybe like six to 8000 bucks um, is what we're dealing with here today. Um, and so this nobleman, he gives him the resources... But he also lays out very clear instructions with what to do with that money. 
He says, invest it for profit. Do business with it. Um, This is the standard, the one standard, by which they'll be evaluated later. And the servants, of course, they correspond to the disciples in the audience and to us today. But what about the mina and this command to uh, do business with it or invest it? Well, it could be a reference to personal gifts that the the Spirit gives to to each one of us. Um, But I don't think that's the best understanding of this mina. I think the best correspondence to this is to the Word of God itself. Uh, We might call it the gospel deposit that's been given to, to each one of us, to every disciple. So look down for a second in verse 16. I think there's some hints that this is, this is the idea. Listen to what the servant says later about this mina. It says, The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. You hear that? Verse 16, Your mina has made ten minas more. And the language here is almost as if the servant is saying, Look, all I did was buy some stocks. I mean, the mina is like doing all the work here. The mina is reduplicating and and growing. And when we transition over to Acts, we find that the Word of God is described in very similar language. Just listen to this. Acts 6-7. And the Word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Listen to chapter 12, verse 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Listen to chapter 19, verse 20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. You hear that? Similar language here, I think, to to correspond to the word of God. So I think that the mina best corresponds to the deposit of the gospel that we've been given, or the word of God, the whole counsel. And the command to invest corresponds to this great commission task that we've been given to make disciples with the truth. And so the point I want to draw out in this very first motivation is this. Christ has clearly laid out these expectations for us. The gospel, like the mina, does not ultimately belong to you and I. It's not our possession in terms of ownership. It's Christ and it's won by him for us. So he gives us the deposit and then says to invest it. We don't have the choice to refuse if we're true servants. Think about it. It would be like your financial advisor refusing to invest your money that you gave to them. You say, wait a minute, you're a financial advisor. Uh, This is your job, right, to invest my money. What would you do? You would take your money away and you would find a financial advisor that would invest your money, right? And so that's sort of the same idea here. As the truth transforms you, you want to see this at work in the lives of other people. You want to invest it in others as you've been liberated yourself. And to know that Christ expects this, crystally clear, he's given us instructions, to know that he expects this of us is a truly motivating thing. To say we have to expend our energy on fulfilling this thing that he's given us to do. Now, this mission that we're commanded to participate in is not some sort of humdrum, yeah, I've got to add one more thing to my schedule mission, okay? Think about 
how glorious the mission is that we've been called to. When you came to Christ, the New Testament says that you became part of the new creation. The new creation. You're now a participant in God's ultimate goal for humanity. His ultimate goal to redeem a people for himself, for his glory. And one day you're going to receive an eternal body that's going to match the inner life that you have. And you're going to live forever in a renewed humanity under Christ's perfect kingship. And now, while you wait for that day, you help bring others to our glorified king to find what you found and to help them live new lives, okay, radically new and different lives in obedience to him. That's an all-encompassing, incredible mission. It's not some sort of humdrum thing we just have to tack on to the other things that we do. Don't sub this mission out for another mission like the disciples were doing. Don't do that. And so you can see, number one, that Jesus clearly expects us to invest and and just graciously, we should say, expects, expects us to invest in this mission. So that brings us to our second motivation. Not only does Christ lay out these expectations clearly, but he's also clear that there's going to be opposition. We can say it like this. Jesus has very, very real enemies who will oppose his mission. They're there. They are real. So be aware. Jesus has very real enemies who are going to oppose this mission. We'll talk about how this motivates us in a second. Okay. Uh, Look in verse 14. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Real enemies. What makes it worse is actually the citizens of this king um, oppose the reign of this nobleman. And that's our third group that we're introduced to. These citizens, they hated the king. Um, And how did their hatred show up? Well, they don't want the man to rule particularly over them, right? So you see the pride that's at at root here. They don't want to submit to his rightful lordship. That's the issue. Now, again, as we sort of pan out in Luke and Acts, we realize that Jesus is preparing his disciples for rejection. Again, very counter their expectations. Um, The citizens, in this case, correspond first to the leadership of Israel. And then... To most of the nation itself. They're not only going to reject Jesus in Jerusalem. But most of them will eventually come to reject the disciples as well. In their testimony about Christ. And this rejection also spreads to the Gentiles. As their minds are poisoned. That's that's the language that's used. Their minds are poisoned by the unbelieving Jews. And Luke is very clear. That all this rejection is ultimately stemming from satanic influence. And so you might be wondering, how is this motivating uh, to us as we try to pursue discipleship relationships? Um, well, let me just give you a few considerations. For starters, it helps us from being overly discouraged when they seem to triumph in the moment. Think about it. Jesus tells us that the enemies are real and they're actively going to seek to oppose the reign of Christ. So don't get discouraged when it happens, 
Right? It's going to happen. Jesus had Judas in the inner circle. Jesus chose Judas. Paul had Demas. So we're going to have close-range opposition to the mission. So stay focused. And beyond this, don't be surprised when the mission gets tough. Man, I'm so often surprised. What? You know, what's happening? You know, it sounds like Peter. Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal when it comes, comes at you. We're so tempted to stop evangelizing whenever uh, we're ridiculed. We're tempted to stop discipling when the progress is difficult. When people walk away from the faith, that hurts. When our friends deceive us. When a, when a high-profile pastor falls. Man, those things are discouraging. And I'm not saying they're not. But do not be surprised. The enemies are very real. And Christ tells us about them so we won't be caught off guard when the mission gets tough. Okay? So you see how this sort of puts some steel in our backbones to sort of stay steady, right? In the midst of enemy fire. Now, let's get back to the parable. Um, The king has commissioned his servants. He's been away. Now it's time for the king to come back with his kingdom. Which brings us to our third motivation. And we could say it like this. Jesus will evaluate how we invested in his mission. Jesus will evaluate how we invested in his mission. There's going to be sort of a reckoning, uh, a call to account, if you will. That's going to involve each one of us, you and I. Now, I've broken this sort of evaluation down into two parts. That's how I squeeze two motivations into one. So, um, bear with me. Uh, This first part, Jesus is going to evaluate us, lavishly rewarding and promoting faithful stewardship. This might be the most important one of them all. Okay? Jesus will evaluate how we invested in his mission lavishly rewarding and promoting the faithful servant. So let's look at it. Verse 15. When he returned, having received his kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. There's our evaluation. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you've been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas more. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. So Jesus is going to evaluate how we invested in his mission. And the first part of this evaluation is he's going to lavishly reward and promote faithful stewardship. And so the correspondence here is pretty clear. This corresponds to our Bema Seat judgment. It's what we call it, um, taken from Paul's letters, where Christ holds us to account and looks at how we spend our lives for him. And so don't depersonalize this. Ask yourself, or think about this for yourself. When Christ returns, he's going to look at how each one of you spent yourself for spiritual fruit. Will those that you personally discipled be your praise and joy on the day of Christ, like Paul says? Or will there be sort of a vacant room there uh, with no one beside you? But 
I don't want to emphasize on this, this negative part just yet. I want you to see this king's incredible generosity. And here's where it gets really motivating. The king rewards this little faithful servant. Unbelievably. He made, this servant made it about maybe like, again, rough comparison, $50,000 worth of profit for the nobleman. And this nobleman rewards him with ten cities. Ten cities. The reward isn't even comparable to the prophet. It's a lavish, generous reward. And, and when you, it's compounded by the fact that the mine is doing the work, right? It's like, man, the mine is doing the work and I'm getting the reward. This dude's just being faithful. But notice specifically what Jesus says. It's more than just, a, in a parable, a monetary reward, even though it, it, it involves that. In fact, we see later, he gets to keep the ten minas. But it's more than that. Look at what else he says. It's a promotion in responsibility. The servant will share in the king's authority. He's a servant. They don't share in authority and rule, but this one does. And this corresponds to the disciples' reward in the kingdom. In the kingdom, we will actively rule with Christ. It's not some lesser existence, like we're tempted to think, with less responsibility. It's a far greater existence. We will be more truly alive there. And if we strive to be faithful now, in this life, we will receive a much more important post then. That's a radically different perspective on life for a disciple of Christ. And what I love about this, just real quick, is that that faithfulness isn't always visible, is it? Um, It's not always measurable to the the naked eye, so to speak. Much spiritual fruit often happens in secret, and I think we're going to be greatly, greatly surprised at who's first in the kingdom of God, who's reigning over the most cities, if you will, um, in in the kingdom. But I don't want you to miss this. All of our life, then, according to this perspective, all of our life is training to reign in the coming kingdom. It's all fair game for accruing spiritual fruit and spiritual reward. And so, is this your perspective? Are you modeling this for your family, for your children, dads, to your wives and, 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 and children, singles, to your friends, other people in the church? Are we modeling this? Are we believing this? Or do you complain about the training that Christ is bringing into your life? Please just realize what Christ is doing in that moment. Realize what he's doing in the mundane and the difficult. He's cultivating the character in your life that will be required or necessary to reign with him. Isn't that beautiful? And so, knowing that Christ is going to evaluate and reward drastically uh, changes the game here in our discipleship efforts. It motivates us to make sure that we're cultivating uh, these kinds of relationships. And it's, it's the positive side of the motivation. But there's also sort of a healthy negative side to this motivation. That's kind of part two. Um, Jesus will also swiftly expose and condemn unfaithful stewardship in his evaluation. Look in verse 20. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. 
You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. Now look what happens. He said to those who stood by, take the mina from him, the poor investor, right? Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And this is shocking even to the people in the parable. They said, Lord, he has ten minas already. It's kind of the idea. Now notice what Jesus says. And I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So now we're introduced to a third servant. The text just simply calls him the other one. Doesn't even give him the dignity of a number. Um, this servant also received a mina, but he refused to invest it. Out of fear, he says. He's judged by the king. The mine is taken away, given to the man with ten minas. So how does Luke intend us to understand this guy? Okay, he doesn't quite fit uh, where we've been before. Well, just notice at the outset that it's important. This third servant's important. He gets the most ink in this parable, right? Uh, most time spent in the parable. And some people think that this guy's a Christian. He's just not very faithful, and so he's just not going to get as much reward in the, in, the, in the next age. And they say this because he was entrusted with a mina at the front, like the other servants, and because his punishment seems on the front end to be less severe than the punishment we're going to see at the end of the uh, enemies. But when we pan out and we look at all of Luke Acts, which again, so helpful from a, from a Bible study perspective, when we pan out, there are multiple warnings against false professions. Meaning, uh, claiming to be part of Christ, or be a disciple, and yet not bearing any fruit. They're like, they don't match. That's not, that doesn't, that's not how it works. But, in the gospel, these people don't inherit the kingdom. And so in this parable, the servant refuses to obey the king's command. The king condemns him, calls him a wicked servant, and ultimately takes his mina away. And again, if the mina is referring to the gospel deposit, that's not good. And so I think what's even more indicting of this guy is that he clearly does not understand. He does not know the character of this king. He accuses the king of being a severe man. He says he, he's unfair. Look, you reap what you don't sow. Is that true? Okay, so we've seen the opposite of that, actually. That this king is the most abundant and generous man probably alive in this time. So the, he does not know the king at all. This, in my view, points to this person as a professor of Christ, meaning they just claim him yet not a true disciple. That's a dangerous place to be because you're deceived. And so I think that's why Luke spends the most time on this third, this third uh, servant. But we, we can learn a lot from this guy. Um, for starters, do you see how a wrong view of the master impacted his attitude and his actions? You see that? The same is true for us. We're sometimes tempted to perceive God in certain ways. It's unfair, uh, miserly, not that generous, doesn't have our best interest in mind. And so we think we have to take care of ourselves. 
We've got to get all the happiness in this world that we can, that we can sort of muster up for ourselves since God's not going to give it to us anyway. Uh, we're not going to work for Christ because we're not really going to be rewarded for it. It's going to be a lot of hard work and a lot of pain and for what? Again, very rarely do we say these things out loud, but functionally that's how we live sometimes. We think we're losing valuable time for recreation or pleasure if we serve Christ. But all this implies a very wrong view of Christ. He is generous. He will reward you for every act of obedience above and beyond what you deserve. And that is the reward that's going to be abundant and it motivates us to really get after this discipleship uh, mandate. So right out of the gate, you see why this is, he's so good for us. And this servant doesn't really actually fear the king, um, even though he says that he does. Um, because notice the king exposes that. The king says, if you actually did fear me, you would have like made the lowest risk investment possible. Right. You would have just put my money in the bank and so it could have collected some interest and been OK. And this is another really important point. His fear was just an excuse. Many professing Christians don't invest in the mission and they waste Christ's gospel resource and they think it doesn't matter. Uh, they think there are going to be no consequences for this. And the part of this parable, uh, this part of the parable tells us that that's absolutely not true. There will be consequences. Christ will expose this and he'll condemn it. And so this condemnation serves to motivate us to truly know Christ, to make sure that we do truly trust him. Because if we do, that faith, that trust over time will produce fruit. You trust Christ, and so you believe what he says is true. You believe that's evil and that's good, and I need to pursue the good. And Christ is going to work in you that fruit uh, in manifested obedience. So this brings us to our last motivation in this parable, uh, and we'll cover it quickly. We can say it like this. Um, well, the, la- the very last motivation is the sermon's over. Uh, just kidding. Uh, number four, Jesus will severely judge the enemies of his mission. Uh, look in verse 27. But for these enemies of mine who do not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Jesus will severely judge the enemies of his mission. Uh, the parable ends on this severe note. And this portion of the parable uh, corresponds to the final judgment. Um, those who rebel against King Jesus. And there's lots of ways this, motivate us, this motivates us. Um, for the sake of time, I'm just going to hit maybe one or two. But obviously we want to avoid it. We want to avoid this judgment. That's why it's there, so that we know about it. If we're not in Christ, we can flee to him in faith and find forgiveness. But also it motivates us to... To, to keep pursuing discipling because we know that these guys aren't going to win. They're going to receive judgment. You and I are tempted to covet what the wicked have now because life's good for them. The world loves them. Things are easy most of the time for them. It's hard for us. So we're tempted to covet, but we need to know that this is not the end. Uh, what we see in this parable is the end. And it, it, and it finally just motivates us to, to pursue these enemies with love Because we were them. And we've been brought to faith in Christ. And so pursue them in this 
attitude of discipling them, teaching them to, to know and obey Christ. So, do you see what I mean when, you, when I say that you squeeze this parable and motivations just drip right out? I mean, they're everywhere. And Jesus is reorienting us to the, to the glorious mission that we're so tempted to sort of get off track in. And he compels us to spend ourselves to participate. And Jesus desires us to get after the business of making disciples, uh, of cultivating these relationships where we help each other follow Christ. Uh, that's the point of the parable. And after hearing a text like this, we're, we're often inspired, like, man, okay, all right, let's, let's, let's do it. Like, let's get, after, let's get after the mission. And then it sort of kind of wanes down on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, next month. Um, so what has to happen about these truths is they've got to become convictional for you. Meaning, you're going to cling to these things no matter what comes at you. You're going to believe them deeply. And when you do, things start changing in your life. Uh, they govern how you spend your time, how you spend your money, how you think about your values, what you ultimately pursue. It, it changes those things as they become at the convictions for you, which takes mind renewal, doesn't it? Um, it takes work. And so, just real practically, what are some of the next steps you can take to, to start cultivating these relationships? That's another sermon. Um, but here's a few just quick suggestions. Uh, confess any wrong thinking in this area uh, before the Lord. Um, receive his mercy, just kind of on the front end. Then begin praying for opportunities, both with unbelievers and believers at Timberlake. And you can be confident that the Lord wants you to do this, so he's going to answer those prayers. Um, and give you the power and ability. But don't just pray and sit back passively. That's not the fulfillment of these things. Uh, if you're not already investing, which I know many of you are, so, but if you're not, start investing in people in your natural spheres of influence. What do I mean by that? Well, your Sunday school class, or your small group, your neighborhood, your family unit, right? So start investing in those. And so If you're not in a Sunday school class or a small group, get in one. Um, we're going to start those, especially small groups, we're going to start those back up um, at the end of August. Befriend somebody. Start getting to know them. Have them over. Look for opportunities to love them. Spur them on to more faithfulness. And then stick to it as you keep renewing your mind here. And last thing I'll say is just find somebody that does this well. Find somebody that does this well and ask them to help you. Um, if you want more instruction on, on this sort of topic, like if you want more teaching, more, you know, insight here. Mark Hager offers what we call advocacy training at TBC in our, in our counseling program. It starts in November, and all that is is teaching you how to come alongside another person and, uh, and help them. So uh, it's exactly what we're talking about here in, um, in Luke 19. So let's pray.